0: We have a very short reading this morning. Um, It's about 1 18th of the length of last week's. I can't promise to speak for 1 18th of the time, so don't get your hopes up here. But uh, we're going to read just the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. And uh, just to bulk it out a little bit, let's start in chapter 11 with the last verses that we looked at last time. So chapter 11 of Romans, verse 33, says this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Then the two verses we're going to be really looking at. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... Let's just um, have a look at uh, what we've been doing in the Book of Romans all year so far. We started back in January, we've got 11 chapters so far, we have five to go, so what's been going on? This is a diagram you've probably seen before, if you've been here before, but uh, this uh, just analyzes what's in the book for us. First of all, we looked at chapters 1 to 4, which talks about the world's problem, the fact that all people, whether they're Jewish or Gentile or whoever they are, are in the grip of a power that will not let them go that shapes their lives for them and makes it less than it ought to be, that leaves them oppressing and diminishing other people. And the world is in a mess because humans are in a mess. Then chapters five to eight talk about God's answer to that. How God forgives people, not just lets them off the hook, but changes them from the inside out, makes them into new people, and then will not let them go. Who can separate us, says the Apostle Paul, at the end of chapter, from the love of Christ? There is nothing in heaven and earth there is nothing anywhere that can stop Jesus from loving us or, for, for, or his love from holding us fast if we belong to him. And that's brilliant. But then he's got to talk about the Jews a little bit. We've done this all summer. We've talked about how that God hasn't abandoned the Jews either. It's not just that he looked at his old chosen people and said, oh, that was a bad mistake. Let's scrap that and do something different. Okay, scrap the Jews. We'll do something with the Gentiles. It's not that way. God's plan works through everybody. All of the civilizations of the world. And the Jews were still his vehicle to make it happen. didn't look that way. But that was the prepared soil in which Jesus was born, was planted, if you like. And he grew uh, uh, in in that specially cultivated environment so that when he died and he rose again, right from the word go, there would be a people who had produced uh, what God wanted to do. And they are still part of his plan. But we've, we've reached the end of that. now, And now we've got the final bit. And so we're starting this morning on what will occupy us right through to Christmas, and that is chapters 12 to 16. It talks about, here's how we ought to spend our lives on earth. One of the most important uh, words in the whole of the book of Romans, and uh, it's why it's um, we're doing just two verses this morning, is that word that starts off chapter 12, therefore. Because for 11 chapters, Paul's been telling us, the story of the world from God's perspective, and everything that lies behind it, and full of doctrine and ideas about what God is doing. And now he's put that whole picture together. But he hasn't done it just to satisfy our curiosity. He's done it so that we can live a life that takes full advantage of everything that God's done for us. And so for the next part of the book, the final part, he's got to spell out in detail. This is how you ought to live. If these things are true, then the only sensible way to live a human life is to do what I'm going to tell you now. That's why the first two verses of Romans 12 are dead important, and this is probably one of the most important talks we'll do in the whole series, because it sums up where Paul wants to take all of his teaching chapters 1 to 11. What do we do with it? Where do we go with it? Here it is in a nutshell, and everything we do from here until Christmas will just be spelling out the implications, really, of verses 1 and 2. But first, before we get there, let's just look back at last week and remind ourselves of, of where we were. You might not have been here, in which case this is to be just a, a, a news flash for you. We talked uh, finally at the end last week of how chapter 11 ended, talking about reconciliation for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul uh, paints how God has worked out his plan. First of all, choosing Israel as God's people through whom Jesus was to come. Then after that, seeing how Israel rebelled against God again and again, and yet after Jesus' death, non-Jews started flocking into God's kingdom. And it became obvious that lots of the, to lots of the Gentile people in the world who were not Jews, this was really good news. And so Paul asks the question, so has God abandoned Israel? No. Because Israel is going to turn back to God. And chapter 11 says that uh, just as the Gentiles have been grafted into the tree and they've become part of the plant, so the whole plant is going to revive. And one of these days, God's people are going to be coming back to him in massive numbers. End result of that is that God's mercy comes to all the people of earth. And then Paul ends the chapter with the words we've already read this morning. We made three points out of it last time, didn't we? We said, first of all, you're in the hands of someone who knows more than you do. God's wisdom says Paul is unsearchable. His paths are beyond tracing out. When you think you understand them you don't. He's always got something more up his sleeve. He's just much much bigger than we are. So in all the situations of life we can trust a wisdom we just don't possess. Second you're in the hands of someone who owes you nothing but he loves you all the same. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Nobody. Nobody. We can't give anything to God that puts him in our debt because he's the supplier of everything anyway. And as a result, we know that we owe God owes us nothing. There's nothing he has to do for us, yet he keeps on showering his blessings upon us because he just loves us. And the third thing was uh, that you're in the best place a human life can be if you're a Christian. For from him and through him and for him are all things. Everything revolves around God and his plan for the universe. And if you are part of that plan which he is working through, if you are in sync with him, then there is no better place in the universe that you could possibly be because you're part of the future. Well, in the evenings at the moment, we're talking about Colossians. And I do um, encourage you to come along tonight if you'd like to. It was brilliant on a bank holiday last week. We had a pretty good attendance. I mean, there's my faith for you. I was driving down the road thinking, nobody's going to be there. This is going to be dire. And we had a lot of people at the service. So brilliant. Well done. And we talked last week about one little word, which occurs six times in the passage of Colossians that we're, we're looking at over last week and this week. And that's that little word, un. And that's one of the words that starts off uh, chapter 12 in Romans. It's a word Paul uses a lot, forty-eight times in the book of Romans, actually, but this is the most important un in the book. Un simply means therefore. I guess, you know, Paul was a preacher who liked uh, expounding and arguing. And so I guess this was a word he used a lot when he was preaching. So if you've been listening to the Apostle Paul, you're going, un, un, un all the time on his way through. It must have been quite interesting. But this word un, which means therefore. Says on, it really means because of everything we've said so far, this is the next step. This is where it goes. And that's what Paul's going to be doing in these two verses. And in just two verses, he tells us an awful lot. I think three things in particular. First of all, he tells us what we should do. In view of everything God has done and the mercy he's shown, here's where we go from here. That's the first thing. But second, he also talks about how you make it happen. And he talks about your mind being made over by God. We must have a look at that in a moment as well. And the third thing is, what is the result going to be? When your mind is made over, when you have given yourself as a sacrifice, in the way that Steve's been talking about, to God, what, what happens to you? What benefit does it bring to your life? Well, he says a bit about that as well. So let's have a look at those three things. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, there's a whole question of what we should do. And this is where he has, starts off. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, be hot this morning. hope you don't mind, but I'm going to take this off. I won't quite get around to the chair, but I'm going to make me sit comfortable. So, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Now, we wouldn't necessarily notice it in Engle- English, but there are several interesting words in there. First of all, I urge you, that's the word parakallio, which means to call somebody alongside. It's a word that says, I'm insistent about it, I really mean it. And so, when he says, I urge you, he's not saying, here are some suggestions that you can apply if you have the time. <laughs> he's not saying, here are five surefire tips to make your life a little bit better. No, he's saying, this is something you must do. I urge you, I plead with you, I beseech you. And so he's dead serious about this, whatever. The second word is brothers and sisters. <laughs> there's a word andros, which refers only to males. But there's another word, adelphos, which means... Men and women. And if you're reading an old-fashioned translation, it probably says, I urge you brothers. But the NIV is dead right when it says brothers and sisters. Because Adelphoi means everybody. If you're a human, this applies to you. There is no question that gets out of the implications of this verse. It's something we must do, all of us. And Paul really is serious about it. And the third thing is in view of God's mercy. Now, Stevie said a little bit about mercy already. And it's interesting that in the Greek, this word is plural. It's not just in view of God's mercy, but in view of God's mercies. Because God shows his mercy in our lives in all kinds of different ways. And Paul's not just talking about the cross and the resurrection, although that's the heart of the whole thing. He's talking about the mercy that God has shown to the Jews down through the years in keeping them going, accepting them as his people when they rejected him again and again and again, rescuing them from Egypt, rescuing them from Babylon, doing all kinds of things with them. And as far as the Gentiles are concerned, he's obviously been hurt to the heart by the way they put up altars to imaginary gods and they've worshipped powers of, of the wind and, and the, the fire and things like that. And he's been hurt he's the creator why don't they recognize me but Paul says in Acts chapter 17 the times of this ignorance God put up with he didn't say I am not having many people in heaven oh I'm finished with the gentile no he put up with that he now calls them to repent and he's on his mercy in a new way Jesus has died for everybody The free gift of God is available to Gentiles, Jews, anybody that wants it. And so the mercies of God cover all sorts of different things. And in your life, you've probably seen God's mercy in many different ways down through the years. as And so in view of all of this stuff, says Paul, look at this grand panorama of everything God's done, which is just love, 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 down through history. In view of that, you must offer your bodies as a spiritual sacrifice. Okay, two more words. First of all, offer. And that's a word which is used for to present before the altar. It's a word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for what you did when you took a sacrifice, a burnt offering or something like that, and you presented it before God. You placed it on the altar in the temple in a particular way so that it was facing towards the most holy place where the presence of God was centered. In other words, you put it where God could see it. You offered it in a particular way because you were saying, I am serious about this. I'm handing this over. I'm making this yours and not mine. It's all for you. And so what Paul is saying is take your body, the physical body that you live in, and make that a sacrifice to God. Just say, it's yours. You can use it any way you want. It's up to you now. It's not my body any longer. It's yours. You made it anyway. You've got claims over it. First, because you created it. Second, because Jesus died for it. And so this body is now yours. It will do what you want it to do. And that's the final word, isn't it? Offer your bodies. (laughs) There were lots of religions around in the first century world that said, you know, the body is not too important. So, you know, you can sleep with who you like. You can do whatever you like with your body. You can get drunk every night. That's okay. As long as your mind is thinking pure spiritual thoughts. It's all right. It's disgraceful. You've been sleeping with women all this week. No, but I've been thinking pure. (laughs) That was all that mattered. And Paul says it's not that way. Your body and your spirit are interconnected. And so, where the rubber hits the road in your life is not your thoughts, so much as your body. What do you do with it? So, offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. Now, that's a bit weird, isn't it? A sacrifice, offer your body as a sacrifice, but a living sacrifice? Well, there are three words that Paul uses in that verse, aren't there, about our bodies being a sacrifice. First is living. The second is holy. And the third one is pleasing. Pleasing to God. And so he's saying, what kind of sacrifice he means? He's not saying, take your body and set light to it. You know, not offering to God. That's very biblical, isn't it? He's not saying that. He's saying, first of all, it's a living sacrifice. See, in the days of the Old Testament sacrifices, when you put something on the altar, it was gone. You didn't have anything to do with it any longer. And maybe you'd have to come along and offer another sacrifice in future, but that sacrifice had reached the limit of its usefulness. Paul says, no, that's not what God wants. He doesn't want burnt offerings. What he wants is you for life. And so a living sacrifice is, first of all, not once for all. It's something that keeps on being offered again and again. Every time you get up in the morning and say, God, this body is still yours, still here on the altar, still here for you to use. I'm sacrificing myself once again today for the next 24 hours, and it's all yours to take and do what you want with. That's much more challenging, isn't it? If it's a once-for-all sacrifice, you find your best vow or your best sheep or whatever it happens to be, you put it on the altar and it's gone. might hurt your pocket for a little while afterwards, but you've done it. You're finished. You are never finished being a living sacrifice, and that's what God has called us to. Second, it's holy, and that means it's not like you were before. The way you know that you are being a living sacrifice is when your life is changing in a way that makes you look more like Jesus. (laughs) And the more you reflect of God's character, his patience, his love, his joy, his peace, all those things, the more you are living at that sacrifice bit. So you become holy. The Holy simply means different, separated, set apart for God. So you're not just watching Match of the Day, although I will admit, Stevie, that last night, 10.20, I gave up preparing this talk and watched Match of the Day instead. So yeah. <laughs> I was not very pleased with some of the results, but that is another issue. <laughs> but anyhow, um, yeah, you've got to live in the real world. You've got to enjoy things around you, but it's a matter of what's at heart, isn't it? And you're not like you were before. You're just living for a different uh, motivation. As Toro once put it, you're living, uh, you're marching to the beat of a different brimmer. And your life is set in a different direction from the way it was before, from the way that most people around you are set. That it means to be a holy, living sacrifice. How about a pleasing, holy, living sacrifice? That's the third word. Well, what that's telling us, I think, is that you do these things not for any human's benefit. You're not doing it to make yourself feel good. I am being more patient this week because I'm a good person. I'm being strong. Oh, look at the money I just gave away to Ukraine, or something like that. It's not for you. And it's not to impress other people. The people in my church think I'm so holy because I work so hard. No, it's not for them and it's not for you. It's for the Lord. And because you are dealing with somebody who knows you through and through, there can be no dishonesty. There can be no fooling yourself, because you can't fool God. That's why Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter two, when he's talking about why they gave so much of themselves to Christians in Thessalonica. When they arrived in Thessalonica and they started working, they were like a, a nursing mother with those new children that they had as Christians. Why did they give themselves with no thought of reward like that? He said, we are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. And that's the challenging thing about being a living sacrifice, isn't it? That the person you're trying to please is somebody who can be fooled. He tests your heart. He knows exactly what's in there. And so you want to be a holy, living, pleasing sacrifice. And Paul says, you know, that's the only way to be. How does that work out in practice? Well, in the early church, uh, born about 300 years after Jesus, actually, there was a guy called John Chrysostom. And uh, he was the Archbishop of uh, Byzantium, which is now Istanbul. And uh, Chrysostom was a brilliant preacher. And uh, that's why he was called Chrysostom. It's not his son, you know, he wasn't the son of Mr. and Mrs. Chrysostom or anything. He was called Chrysostom because that means golden mouth. He was an absolutely brilliant preacher. And as a result, most of his preaching has been saved for the last 2,000 years. And you can read it on the Internet today. Wonderful thing, the Internet. And uh, Chrysostom must have really had a great style and been very progressive because some of the things he said in his preaching, I would never get away with. And he knew how to kind of criticise people with a smile on his face. And he was realistic. He was practical in the way that he preached. And he talked about this, this, this passage about uh, uh, being a living sacrifice. And he said, this is what it really means. Prevent your eye from looking at something evil. It has become a sacrifice. Do not let the tongue say something shameful. It has become an offering. Do not let the hand perform a lawless action. It has become a whole burned offering. Yet these things are not good enough. We must also perform good works. It's not just reactive, it's proactive as well. Let the hands give alms. Let the mouth bless those who abuse. Let the hearing devote itself continuously to listening to divine speech. For sacrifice is the first fruits of all other actions. In other words, if you want to live a Christian lifestyle in your actions, the first thing you've got to do is sacrifice yourselves. Get that straight in your head. I belong to him, not me. My agenda is his agenda, not mine. And then all of the other actions flow from that decision that you make. And remember, you don't make it once for all. You make it every time you wake up in the morning. And uh, Paul says, this is your, well, it says here in the NIV, spiritual act of worship. And this is one thing I think the NIV gets wrong. It is true that some people have translated the word spiritual that you read there as spiritual. But that's not really what the word means. And uh, I could give you a long argument about why they've got it wrong, but uh, let's not worry about that. The important thing, the word is the word from which we get the word logic. It is your logical, reasonable, rational act of worship. So that's really what's being said here. Paul's saying, in view of everything that God's done, when you stand back and you look at it, what else could you do with your life? It's the smartest thing you could possibly do. Hand it over to Jesus Christ. And... uh, uh, he's well aware that people who are looking at all of us and say, whoa, I don't know, my, my life on the altar every single day, 24-7, no days off for good conduct, or no chance to do something evil just once in a while to to myself, whoa, that sounds like a big big undertaking. And Paul says, you know, it's logical, isn't it? What else would you do? If Jesus is the Son of God and died for you, what else are you going to do with your life? One great missionary Howard Taylor once said, If Jesus Christ, Christ, the Son of God, and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. It's logical. Makes sense. It adds up. And so that's what Paul is saying we all have to do. But then he talks about how you make it happen. Because you might say, okay, right, this is a whole list of rules that's coming through here. I don't like it. You must do this. You must do that. You must. But it's not actually. And the way you make it happen is simply to allow yourself to be changed inside. The trouble is, we are living in a world where people are living according to a different pattern. And that's why Paul goes on at the start of verse 2 to say, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. There are lots of voices around us. And with social media and Netflix and the proliferation of TV channels and all the rest of it, they're becoming louder and louder and more and more indistinct in our lives. There are lots of voices that would love to stop us serving Jesus. One of the reasons for that is that it doesn't make money for anybody. Oops, hang on a minute. And so the Apostle Paul says, don't don't be conformed to that pattern. Don't do what everybody else around you is doing. Or as J.B. Phillips translates it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Which is a brilliant translation of what Paul's getting at here. They want to mold us. They want to make us just like everybody else in the world. They want you to be another little consumer. Don't be that way. Don't buy into anybody else's package. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You might be different. You might have to stand out against the crowd. That is what you're called to. Do not be conformed to the people of this world. Actually, this picture is not right, is it? Because it was you against everybody else. You'd never survive. But, of course, God has put you into a whole new family. A nation of people are priests to God who live according to a different pattern and by being in their community by belonging to the church sharing your life with them and letting them share the life with you you are given the resources and the power and the initiative to keep ongoing and serving God in that kind of a way you're one of our fifth column amongst humanity that's working for a revolution and if you're a Christian you can't get away from that But the world does try to conform you. Uh, one example that I've noticed this weekend uh, in The Times' the, the uh, Saturday interview yesterday was an interview with Soma Sara. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but she's 22 years old. She's a graduate who's uh, had an interesting teenage experience at school of sexual harassment, slight abuse, that kind of thing. And she started an organisation two years ago called Every- Everybody's Welcome inviting people who are at school, teenagers, and pre-teenagers too, to write in and just tell her about their experiences of being harassed, sexually, at school. She had 50,000 responses within a year. Incredible uh, postbag that she got. And she says, now, I never imagined it would explode on this scale. And now everyone's uh, invited, has grown into a, a movement. It's now sending people into schools to help teachers deal with the problems they face in this area, and to help people deal with this issue of relating properly to one another and not just seeing other people as sexual objects. And she says, why is this happening? Is it because kids today are much more depraved than they used to be? They're not like my generation, you know, we were fine standing teenagers and now they're all depraved. No, it's not that way. No." It's the culture they live in. It's the way that availability of easy porn and things like that is just changing people's minds. And uh, she says in the interview, boys are being increasingly manipulated by toxic anti-male influencers, promoting a masculinity that is about domination and suppression and hurting and belittling women and competing and winning. And she's dead right. You look at TikTok for half an hour. (laughs) You spend half an hour looking at the Instagram influencers, and you find this kind of stuff coming through again and again. A poison culture that's diminishing people's lives. And so, Paul says the battle for your life starts with your mind. Yeah, what works out through your body? We've said that already. But your mind is the key to your body. And so, he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a verse in Proverbs. It says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The thoughts that go through your head, the ideas that captivate your imagination, the things you think about when you first wake up in the morning, those are the things that decide the kind of human being that you become. They are your priorities. They are shaping your future, whether you like it or not. And so he says, be transformed by letting your mind be renewed. I was interested when I was preparing this to find that um, uh, there's a book about uh, Proverbs 23, 7, kind of, uh, called As a Man Thinketh, that was written back in the early 1900s by J. Allen. Now, it wasn't me, I'm not that old, and uh, anyway, he spells his name the wrong way, which is dreadful, and it's James, not John. But uh, this book is still available, as you will see, in many different editions on, on uh Uh, Amazon today because it's just proved a very very useful self-help book and uh, James Allen says things like this a man is literally what he thinks his character being the complete sum of all his thoughts men are anxious to improve their circumstances but are unwilling to improve themselves and they therefore remain bound every action and feeling is preceded by a thought the physically weak man cannot make himself strong by careful and patient training, so the man uh, can make himself strong by careful and patient training, so the man of weak thoughts can make them strong by exercising himself in right thinking. Same thing again and again. Think the right way, captivate your thoughts, and you can become a stronger person. Every man is where he is by the law of his being. The thoughts which he has built into his character have brought him there. And in the arrangement of his life, there is no element of chance, but all is the result of a law which cannot err. He's saying it's, it's an ironclad law. The things you think about decide the kind of person you become. Now, I am not urging you this morning to go out and buy uh, James Allen's book for one of two reasons. The first reason is I get no royalties from it. The second thing is that I, I think it, it falls short. Because what it's doing basically is claiming that you can change yourself. And for three reasons, which I will give you tonight if you come, (laughs) I think you can't do that. You can't renew your own mind. Actually, Colossians chapter 3, which we're looking at tonight, is all about this stuff. So we're going to go a bit deeper into this evening. If you're interested, do come back. But uh, basically, what he's saying is, 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 is correct. That it's your thoughts that control your life. And so if your mind can be renewed, if you can start thinking in the right way, if you can let Jesus become the center of your imagination, then you're going somewhere. It means allowing enough of the Bible to filter through into your life that it starts changing your opinions on things so that you start seeing the world with God's eyes rather than just your own. It means having not just your mind but your imagination captivated. Now that's important. Because many of us grow up knowing in our minds the commands of the Bible. I should be like this. I sh- thou shalt not do not do this. And we have a whole list of do's and don'ts that we get from Sunday school onwards that are firmly implanted in our brain. But real Christian thinking starts when our imagination is taken over. When you start using not just the rules, but also the spirit of them. What God is doing. The beauty of what he wants to do in your life the awesome nature of what he wants to do in the universe and when you become part of that in your imagination then you've got no place for other things that might come in small agendas that might might control the whole thing it's as if you're sitting in a a meeting of the executives planning the future of the company and the uh, executive chairman says Right, OK, so we have a worldwide vision. We're going to expand massively over the next five years. We're going to plant an Amazon every, every, every continent of the world. We're going to really make this business fly and flourish. Have you any questions? And you put around and say, "Yes, will there still be coffee at 11 o'clock every morning?" You know That's another vision that really doesn't count. It's minor, it's tiny. In view of a global worldwide vision, it, it, it's not important. OK, you want your coffee, but it's a very small part of life. And yet we can spend our whole life thinking about the little things, the tiny things, the things that bring comfort to our bodies, rather than thinking, I am part of something massive, and that's where I need to put my time. So finally, he says what the result will be. He says, when you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, end of verse 2, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Now that phrase, test and approve, is the NIV's attempt to translate just one word in the Greek. But they're right because it means both things. To test out God's will. You can really put God's will to the test when you said, Right, Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do next? I'm here. Just use my life any way you want. The decisions will be up to you. The circumstances will be up to you. The people you introduce me to will be up to you. I'm just at your disposal. At that point, you start testing out God's will. Because you allow God's will to take your life along and when you do test out god's will says paul same word you approve it you say it's good for me this is what i like this is the way i want to be this is the smartest place in the universe to belong and i am not going to stand anywhere different and paul says when you find out what god's will is like then there are three things about it first of all you realize it's good (laughs) That what he wants for you is better than anything else you could possibly have you could make it to stardom you could live the dream you could have all the money you could have all, all the followers 365 is not many followers stevie but you know you have millions of followers all social media. you could do all that stuff and it wouldn't do you any good because being in the center of god's will is the only good place in the universe really to be and then the second word he uses it's pleasing it's pleasing to god and it's pleasing to you you start realising that your life is fitting together and integrating and making sense and firing on all of its cylinders in a way that it never has done before. And finally, it's complete. Well, the word that's used here in the NIV is perfect, but it's the Greek word telios, which means missing nothing at all. Do you remember when Peter came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we've given up all sorts of things to follow you. I had quite a nice fishing business and the boat is still beaten on the side of Lake Galilee. And you know, we've given up our families, we don't see our relatives very often, we've given up all sorts of good things, you make us sleep out in the desert overnight sometimes, what do we get out of this? And they said, listen, I'm promising you that nobody gives up anything for the kingdom of heaven who will be repaid over and over and over again, both in this life and in the life that's to come. And God keeps that promise. You look at somebody else's life from the outside and say, whoa, he was a dedicated Christian, he gave everything he had, and, uh, you know, uh, it must have been pretty miserable living that one. Not at all. When you look at the people who really have lived as living sacrifices through their whole career, you find an incredible peace, serenity, and joy radiating from them. Even when their life from the outside looks as if it's been spent in very tough ways. <laughs> one example of that, of course, and this is the final thing I'm going to say this morning. This is a great 19th century explorer, David Livingston. This is not Livingston. This is uh, Henry Morton Stanley. Do you remember? He was the, the journalist who was sent out to look for Livingston in Africa because Livingston had been missing for three years. Nobody had seen him and they didn't know where he was, especially his wife. You know? And uh, he was just doing what God had called him to do in the middle of the jungle, doing important work that's just still going on today, really, years, years after his death. And H.M. Stanley was sent out by a newspaper to see if he could find Livingston, so, found him in darkest Tanzania. And uh, as uh, you've probably uh, read the story's famous, uh, walked up to, to, to Livingston, the only white man in the middle of all of these Africans, held out his hand and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. <laughs> and he presumed absolutely right. And Stanley, uh, he, he, he met Livingston, that's Livingston there, uh, was not a believer in God. He said he was an incredibly convinced atheist. But he spent four months living with Livingston, seeing him in action, and he saw a life that was a living sacrifice. And he wrote when he got back home about what he'd experienced. He said this, For four months and four days, I lived with him in the same hut or the same boat or the same tent, and I never found a fault in him. I went to Africa as prejudiced against religion as the worst infidel in London. But there came to me a long time of reflection. I was out there away from the worldly world. I saw this solitary old man there, and I asked myself, why does he stop here? What is it that inspires him? For months after we met, I found myself listening to him. One at the old man carrying out the words, leave all and follow me. But little by little, seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, And how he went quietly about his business, I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it. Just living the life in front of him showed Stanley the attractiveness of following Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. And Livingston was prepared for any cost. I remember once when I was a student being challenged by uh, a talk that Martin Lloyd-Jones gave at a student conference I went to. And he ended by challenging us to pray a prayer. And we're going to pray this at the end this morning. A prayer which he said was one of the toughest prayers in the world to pray, but one which every Christian ought to pray. And I only found it later on, that actually came from Livingston. Because Livingston kept a diary day by day. And uh, in 1872, he was a no-nonsense Scotsman, Livingston, and he started off 19th March 1872, birthday. (laughs) That was it, his birthday celebration. Happy birthday, David. Okay, and then he says... Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties, save the tie that binds me to thy heart. You ready to say that? You ready to pray that? This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. Before Stevie comes back and we sing our last song, let's just pray together. I'm going to say that prayer as part of it. If you want to make it yours, then do that this morning. So, Heavenly Father, we've just tried and failed to get to the bottom of two verses in your word. There's just so much there that we could still unpack that's still there for us. And we pray that you help us be Romans 12, one to two people for all of our lives as we serve and follow you. Help us be committed, not by our own will or determination but by the grace of God working in us that's changing us as people renewing our minds making us more and more eager and willing and hungry and thirsty to follow you better and so we say Lord send me anywhere only go with me lay any burden on me only sustain me. to any ties. Save the eye that binds me. To thy heart. Hear what we say Lord. Take it seriously because we are serious. And give us the grace and the blessing and the power that we need. To work it out. As we follow you. For your name's sake. Amen.